Father, we pray that you would open our eyes now to see the glory of Christ in the text of John 6. Give us great understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to John chapter 6 and verse 60. John 6 and verse 60, we continue to make our way through this wonderful gospel. And today, Lord willing, will be our final week in John chapter 6. If Christianity were a selling point, what would be your leading pitch? If you ever sat through a timeshare or resort sales pitch, it sounds something like you're going to live in luxury. Everything will be perfectly pristine. The food will be exceptional. The environment will be refreshing. You won't have a care in the world. You and everyone you're with will be completely taken care of. If Christianity were the item for sale, what do you entice people with? You probably would start with eternal life. It's hard to beat that. Someone says, what if I told you you could live forever? And most people lean in at that point. It's easy to sell Jesus when you talk about eternal life. And it's easy to sell Jesus when you talk about eternal joy. It's easy to sell Jesus when you talk about no more tears, no more pain, no more sadness. You see loved ones and there'll be streets of gold and mansions of glory and pearly gates and all the other images that our culture uses. And who wouldn't want heaven then? But every sales pitch has the fine print, doesn't it? The medical commercials that you see on TV will distract you from the fine print by putting a nice family playing on a beach with ice cream cones in their hands while the water is splashing, while the voice says very quickly in the background, may cause diarrhea, swollen lips, headache, fatigue, and memory loss. Talk to your doctor if you experience such symptoms. But try, go easy today and live the life that you're looking to live. But when Jesus talks about following him and the life that it provides, he puts nothing in fine print. In fact, Jesus speaks in the boldest of lettering right up front so you know exactly the cost. When people hear the words of Jesus. They are either drawn to him or disgusted by him. We're in a section where Jesus has been teaching on the eternal life he provides. And now it's time, he gets to the end of this discourse, now it's time for the people to respond. Where we pick back up today in John chapter 6 is the point of decision for the people having heard the teachings of Jesus on him being the eternal bread from heaven, 
what will they now do? We're going to see two reactions. Those who are drawn to him and those who walk away disgusted by him. And for you today, I hope that you won't listen to this sermon as just a casual routine listening of what you do every Sunday. You go, you listen to a sermon. No, I hope for you today that you will find yourself in a, a similar position. Having heard the words of Jesus, will you stay with him or leave him? Look with me in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I have four considerations for you from this text to meditate on today. Number one, who would follow Jesus? Who would follow Jesus? Given the words of his teachings, who would want to follow him? I get this question from verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, what are they talking about? What is the hard saying? Jesus has just finished, if you've been with us in the last few weeks, this teaching on how to receive eternal life from him. He has said that only those who come to him and only those who believe in him and only those who are consumed in and consumed with him have eternal life. In fact, Jesus has likened himself in this section to being bread from heaven. He's just told them that only those who eat and drink of him, the eternal bread, would have eternal life. In other words, to have eternal life 
is to find it only in Jesus, not just associating yourself with him, not just acknowledging him, but feasting on him. Being consumed in and with him, being totally dependent on him like you are for daily bread. To this, many of the disciples hear this teaching and they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? In other words, who can bear it? Who would want to receive this teaching? Who would want to accept this? And it's actually a good question. It's a better question than they probably realized when they asked it. Because many people want eternal life. I've never heard of anyone who says no thanks to eternal life. But do they all want to be consumed with Jesus? You know, many people are okay if heaven is like that five-star resort where God is the owner, but he never makes an appearance, he never comes around, but they get to enjoy all the luxury that he provides. I'm perfectly fine with that being eternal life. And for these people, and they want Jesus to give them the food to eat, provide the bread like you did in the wilderness, and they want to be amazed by his miracles. Yes, yes, produce more wine, why don't you? They want to enjoy the show while it's in town. But now that he's talking about feasting on him, hmm, they say, ah, that's kind of hard to swallow, Jesus. In fact, who would want to? Who would want to follow this man with this teaching? And it's a great question, especially when you consider, this is not the only hard thing Jesus said. It's a great question when you consider the other hard sayings of Jesus. I mean, again, Jesus is in no way subtle about what it means to, fo to follow him. He never puts the hard stuff in fine print. He just comes out and he says it. The same Jesus who has called them to feast upon him is the same Jesus who would give even more hard sayings. Just consider a few. What about his call to die when at one time he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Listen, for whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And we might be tempted to say, I don't know about that, Jesus. I like my comfortable life. I take up a cross and die? I don't want to live a daily crucified life. I'm quite fine with my comfort level. What about his call to forsake the world? Where one time he asked, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? And we say, I don't know, Jesus, I like my stuff. You know, I have an accumulation plan. What about his warning to the rich? Where he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we say, whew, glad I'm not rich compared to the world we are. 
What about his call to put him first? Oh, listen to the boldness. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You say, I don't know Jesus. Like, I'm willing to put you before everything, but this is my little girl. This is my little boy. This is my mom. This is my dad. This is my family. We're blood. Jesus says, if you put them before me, you're not worthy of me. Maybe one more. What about his call to put sin to death? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So I don't know, Jesus. Sin feels good. Oh, we don't have to say any more of his hard sayings. See, it's easy to talk about following Jesus with eternal life in view. It's much harder to talk about following Jesus when we hear him say, forsake the world, love me more than your riches, more than your family, more than your sin, come ready to die every day, taking up your cross and follow me. Who's ready to sign up? When those statements are in view, we might say, like they did, this guy's talking about feasting on him. Man, these are hard sayings. Who can listen to them? We might say, like the disciples in Matthew 19, my goodness, who then can be saved? With these hard sayings in mind, we certainly ask, who would want to follow Jesus when we love our world, our flesh, our stuff, our self, our sin so much more? Who would follow him? It's a really sensible question when they ask it. And I just wondered this morning, for you and me, are we prepared to take Jesus at his word? All of them even the hard ones. Now as they're questioning Jesus, look at what he says in verse 61. They say, oh, these things are hard. Who can listen to them? Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Commentators are all over the place on what Jesus is saying here about seeing the Son of Man ascended to where he was before. I'll tell you briefly what I think Jesus is getting at here. Jesus knows that they're grumbling about him. They don't like his teachings. So he confronts them. He says, do you take offense at this? In other words, so you don't like what I've said. They say, no. No. And he says in verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In essence, Jesus says, if you're getting upset about me calling myself bread from heaven, then just imagine how upset you'd be if you saw me go back to heaven. Do you remember a few chapters before in chapter 3 where Nicodemus is confused over the words of Jesus? And Jesus says to him, chapter 3, verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
See, these people are stumbling over him, calling himself the bread from heaven. And it's like Jesus says, you have no idea how much heaven I can show you. Now, what he says next in the text is going to show that Jesus is not surprised that they're stumbling over his teaching. In fact, do you remember earlier in John chapter 6 when the people are grumbling about his claims, what he says to them? John chapter 6 verse 43, he says, Do not grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him first. In other words, Jesus is not surprised when people grumble over him, when, he, when they don't accept his claims, because he knows that they're not going to accept his claims until the Father draws them first. Well, it's the same case here at the end of John 6. They're stumbling over his teaching, asking who can listen to this. And what he says next reinforces the fact that he's not surprised when people reject him. He knows exactly why people reject him. Look at what he says in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This is the second consideration that I want you to meditate on this morning. Number one, who would want to follow Jesus? Number two, what must God do? People are grumbling over his teaching here. They're stumbling over his claims. And Jesus is totally not surprised because he knows God must do something first. Now, how does he know this? He knows this because he knows where life comes from and he knows the nature of man. Do you hear what he says? It is the spirit who gives life. That's where life comes from. The flesh is no help at all. That's the nature of man. That's why he's not surprised at their unbelief. The flesh is no help at all. The other day I was holding my son Titus who was seven months old, about seven months old for those of you who don't know him. Now to this point in Titus's life, he's never seen a meal that he didn't like. The boy loves eating. And I can say this at this age and he won't be offended by it, but the other day I was holding him and he had only a diaper on, so all of his rolls were exposed in full light. Just roll on top of roll on top of roll. And as I'm holding him, he just kind of balls over into whatever form my arms are holding. And so he just in this big ball and just more rolls and rolls and rolls are there. And as he's fully content and he's smiling, I joked and said, Titus is just my big old ball of flesh. If you hold a big pudgy baby, you know what I'm talking of. It's just a big ball of flesh. When Jesus says here the Spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all, that's what I think about. I think about Titus within and of himself. His faculties, his body, just his natural state has nothing within him that is going to create this eternal life for himself. That flesh that we live in is that natural state that we're born into apart from God. We're fallen from God. It, creates nothing Godward in us. 
All of our natural inclinations and intuitions are self-seeking and they stem not from a heart of life, but a heart of death. When Jesus says here, the flesh is no help at all, he means no one has anything within himself that can help one bit toward that eternal life. Now we are fallen human beings who when left to ourselves, we will not seek God. Nothing within us will produce that. So what must happen? Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. These people are right when they question who would follow this man. And Jesus says, in essence, you're right. No one will receive these teachings until the Spirit gives them life to receive it. The flesh is no help to them. And aren't we tempted here to say, none, Jesus? Like, not even a little bit? And Jesus says, no, there's nothing in you that helps you have spiritual life. The flesh is no help at all. And yet, how many times have we heard language over the years like, you know, God has taken 99 steps and he just needs you to take that last one. Or, you know, God has come halfway and he just needs you to meet him the rest of the way. Or, you know, you're drowning in the ocean and God has thrown the life preserver to you and all you got to do is reach for it. Oh, friends, hear Jesus say, the flesh is no help at all. When the Bible talks about us being reconciled to God, it does not talk about meeting God halfway. Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't meet halfway. You don't reach for it. This is why the Bible describes our state before being in Christ as being dead. That God doesn't need us to take the final step. He doesn't stop halfway and wait for us. He doesn't throw the life preserver and watch. No, God in his grace decides to give his spirit so that he takes all the steps to ensure that you come to life. God in his grace gives his spirit so that he goes beyond throwing the life preserver and instead he dives in, goes to the bottom of the ocean floor, retrieves your dead corpse, brings you back to the shore, beats on your chest, breathes life into your lungs, and when you wake up, you say thank you, not because he threw you a preserver, but because he brought you back from death to life. Because you know it's the Spirit who gives life, not the flesh, because it's no help at all. If it was up to the flesh, oh, we'd be at the bottom of the ocean being fish food still. Who would follow Jesus? Listen, no one would. Unless the Spirit gives life. It's what God must do. Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 63, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, the message that Jesus speaks is completely spirit-filled. It's from God. It contains the words of life. But, verse 64, but there are some of you 
who do not believe. How does Jesus know that? John kind of gives us commentary here how Jesus knows that. Verse 64, he says, there are some of you who don't believe, and John tells us, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Now look at verse 65. And he said, this is Jesus still speaking to these people, this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it is granted him by... No one can come unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, if you take that little commentary of what John provided out, the natural flow of what Jesus has just said, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Jesus explains here the ultimate reason behind their unbelief. Notice I said ultimate. Jesus says, hear my words. They are spirit and life. And yet, you don't believe. Why? What's, what's the holdup? Jesus says, this is why, verse 65, this is why I told you, no one can come, no one can believe unless it is granted by the Father. That's the ultimate reason behind their unbelief. They need the Father to grant them belief. They need the Father to draw them in. And why do they need the Father to draw them in? Because remember, the flesh is no help at all. They need the Spirit to give life. Here we see no one overcomes his own unbelief. He'll never want to. He'll always love the darkness over the light because that's his nature. It will never want to come to Jesus on its own. That's why the Father must grant them come and enable them with the life-giving Spirit. It's what God must do. So, brothers and sisters, pray for your unbelieving family members and friends and co-workers. Pray for them. And how do we pray for lost people? We pray, God, please open their eyes. God, please open their hearts. God, please give them understanding of the gospel. And we pray like that because we know the Father must give them life. And it's what we pray for them. Who would follow Jesus? Absolutely no one until God acts first. And notice what they do next. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. If we could feel the reality of that verse, it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Jesus in the flesh, before them, and they just say, no thanks. They act on their unbelief. They turn around and they leave him. This is the third consideration of the text I want you to meditate on. Number one, who would follow Jesus? Number two, what must God do? Number three, what must you decide? Notice what these people are stumbling over. Jesus' teachings 
And now it's the same people walking away. And notice what they're called throughout this text. Two times, verse 60 and verse 66, both label them as his disciples. Now normally when we think of Jesus' disciples, we think of the twelve. But here, there are thousands of people who have been following Jesus and many of them would label themselves as disciples of Jesus, meaning they're following the one who's given them this bread in the wilderness and they're following the one who's amazed them with his signs. But now that the teachings have become hard, they're gone. And it is here that we should feel the sobering reality of this text and be challenged. Please listen, especially in the Bible Belt USA, it is entirely possible to simply wear the label disciple and ultimately walk away from Jesus proving yourself to never have truly been one. These people wear the label, but they walk away. When teaching gets tough, the fake start showing. How many in our day are happy to wear the label Christian when Jesus is handing out the bread? When you know it's kind of expected around everybody that you're supposed to be a Christian when you're filling out one of those surveys about yourself and it says religion well you mark Christian because that's what mostly everybody does around here how easy it is to in our society in our Bible belt to wear the label Christian but then when he starts talking about the cross <laughs> dying to self how quickly we forsake it you know, if Jesus is simply trying to draw a crowd here, he's not doing a very good job. If his main concern is numbers, then he's got a big problem because hundreds of them are leaving him by the minute. At the start of this chapter, Jesus sees their faces coming to him and they're intrigued and they want bread. And now at the end of the chapter, he sees the back of their heads leaving him disgusted. And these have been fake disciples. And they've heard enough and they don't like it. And as hundreds leave him, he turns to the twelve. The ones we know most about. Look what he says in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? So these 12 minus 1 are his true disciples. And he asked them, as hundreds show themselves to the door, would you like to go too? And now they have a decision to make. And if you think about the context here, you can feel the pressure hundreds are leaving and 12 are standing Jesus gives them the do you want to leave too uh, Peter has to be thinking about the family business back home about 
how he could go back on the boat and make some money fishing. Matthew thinks, well, I could certainly make more money at the tax booth. Luke can go back to practicing medicine. Do you feel the pressure here? Would you like to go too? How easy it would have been to just go with the majority. This guy, I mean, he was, it was fun when he was providing bread and it was kind of cool when he was doing cool tricks, but now that he's talking about eating and drinking his blood, like, uh, we're out. We really want to be associated with him? And Jesus gets to the heart of it and he asks, what do you want to do? And I love that Jesus phrases it like this. Do you want to go away as well? Is that what you want? Is that what you desire? I told you this third consideration is what you must decide. Remember, it is the Spirit that must give life. You can't do it. These disciples cannot do it. The Father must draw them. If the Father doesn't draw them, the disciples are walking away with the hundreds of people, and so would you. He must draw. But listen, one of the key indicators to know if the Spirit has worked in your heart is to test your desires. And Jesus says, do you want to go too? What do you want? And I would ask you this morning, do you want Jesus? Because the reality is, dead people don't want Jesus. Not for the right reasons anyway. Do you want him for who he is? Have you heard his hard sayings and still desire to follow him? Have you seen what the world offers and know that Jesus is the better value? You may wonder, how do I know if the Spirit has given me life? I would just ask you, do you love, do you desire, do you want Jesus? So Jesus looks at the twelve and he says, you guys want to leave too? And the spokesman Peter speaks up in verse 68. Look what he says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. These men have lots of other places they could go, but Peter sees only Jesus has the words of eternal life. The Spirit has given them life and now they respond as alive people do. If you examine his response in detail, we see the signs of true faith. They've forsaken their former ways of life. They've come to cherish and value who Jesus is. They come to believe in him and they acknowledge that he is the Holy One of God. So that when Jesus says, you guys want to leave too, they say, no way. In you, we have life. In you, we have everything. In you, Jesus, we have God. Do you see the 
contrast taking place between the hundreds of fake disciples leaving and the few true disciples staying. And what we see here is Jesus isn't concerned with drawing a great crowd. Jesus is concerned with drawing God's children. And just as each of them had to decide, all of you must as well. To consider the man Jesus, listen to his teachings, hear his call, and yes, make your decision. Do you go away or do you stay? Now this chapter ends in a twist. One of the good things about expositional preaching is you know when we're almost done and we only go to verse 71 and I'm at verse 70. So we're close. It ends in a twist. Yes, hundreds of people have left Jesus but 12 have stayed. The Spirit has brought life to them. They've decided to forsake the world to stick with Jesus. Peter has just given this wonderful profession of faith. You have the words of life. We believe you. We know you're God's sent Savior. We're staying with you. And at this point, we might expect the narrative to end in some celebratory fashion. Now, maybe Jesus calls them in and says, all right, hands in, boys. You're with me. I'm with you. Let's stick together. Let's go win the world. Let's go storm the palace of the emperor. Let's go win it all. And maybe they break the huddle and they go win the world for Jesus. But it's not exactly that yet. Because here's the twist. He's given this marvelous profession of faith. In verse 70, Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. Literally, the text says, one of you is the devil. John tells us in verse 71, he's speaking of Judas. I suspect most of you in here have heard of Judas. But imagine reading this for the first time and not knowing. Imagine hearing this as one of the twelve. Yeah, Peter finally said the right thing. And Jesus says, one of you is the devil. That's the fourth consideration I want you to consider from this text is how the text ends. Who would follow Jesus? What must God do? What must you decide? Number four, who is blending in? Who is blending in? In verse 67, when Jesus originally asked the question, do you want to go away as well? That you there is plural. So in essence, he's saying to all of them, do y'all want to leave as well? And then in Peter's response, he's speaking for the group. That's when he says, to whom shall we go? We have believed. We have come to know. So the picture is, the 12 disciples are standing there, and Peter's saying, we believe. We've come to know. We, yes, we are with you. And the whole time they're shaking their head, including Judas. is just sitting there, shaking his head. In this text where we see a very clear contrast of those walking away and those who stay, please hear me clearly, there's another danger. 
It's not the ones leaving and it's not the ones who are staying. It's the lukewarm position. It's the one who doesn't become hostile to Jesus and storm away. It's the one who simply blends in while never buying in. The one, you know, who goes through the religious motions and knows all the right Bible answers and looks the part and speaks the part and plays the part. The one who goes to church every week or every now and then just because it's the cultural expectation. And the one who, then because of all of that, just wears the label. But on the inside is a rotten, deceived, false believer. It's the one who hangs with Jesus and speaks of Jesus and then kisses his on the cheek to betray him. While loving the world more ultimately than loving Jesus. That was Judas's problem. Judas loved the things of the world more than Jesus. And when the time came to decide, he picked his side and he chose his silver. Oh, friends, there is a danger in being so close to the ways of Jesus that you blend in publicly without ever buying in personally. And I feel compelled to ask that in a crowd like this, how is it possible, is it possible that any of you have been blending in publicly while never buying in personally. Friends, there is a grave danger there. If it's any of you this morning, your path doesn't have to end where Judas has ended. Why not today instead repent of just going through the motions? Why not today say, you know, I'm done blending in and pretending today is the day I become a true follower of Christ. Why not today? I close with one last question. I think we all wonder it if we study this text in depth. Why did Jesus choose Judas to be in the twelve? I mean, he's clear about that in verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Why did he choose him? Because here we see that Jesus' plan was never to lead a governmental takeover. His plan all along was to go to the cross. Which is, makes perfect sense why he chose Judas. Because Jesus will ultimately decide when he goes to die. He will ultimately decide when the cross comes. And if Jesus is to fulfill his plan of becoming a substitute for sinners and for this group of Romans to come and kill him, to be sacrificed on a cross, then he needs one that's going to lead him there. And he would use the depravity of Judas to bring about his redemptive plan. You've heard the phrase, keep your friends close and enemies closer. Jesus kept Judas close to fulfill his plan. Who would follow Jesus in light of such things? 
I pray for each of you this morning that the Spirit has given life so that none of you would walk away and none of you would blend in. But I pray all of you, by the Spirit of God, would be His children, ready to follow whatever the cost. Let's pray.